Good evening, and welcome to Gallery of Curiosities. I am your host, Osgood Underby. Here in the gallery you will find the artifacts I have collected over my life. Some may be considered of universal value while others may find their worth only in the sentiment they provided their previous owners. This cameo, for example, a little masterpiece, really, depicting a loving couple locked in an amorous embrace. A wedding gift, perhaps, or a little something for a sweet valentine. Valuable enough to be tossed in a pond in exchange for a wish, yet not valuable enough to be collected with the coins when the pond was drained. It puts me in mind of our first story, a tale by Chris Kelworth. Mr. Kelworth lives in Hamilton, Ontario. He has been writing science fiction and fantasy stories with increasing diligence for the past 25 years, and is a graduate of The Odyssey, Tao's Toolbox, and Young Guns Workshops. He works in Burlington as a computer software developer under an assumed name. His story is read to you by Miss Garnet Saltery. Love is a Masterpiece by Chris Kelworth When Cassandra and her mother got to Frigga's Park, there were three dozen couples ahead of them in line for the canal and the sacred tunnel. The queue stretched down a path through the flower garden. Are you satisfied? Mother asked, brushing a curl of Cassandra's golden hair from her forehead. You dallied long enough at the house that we're late. No. Cassandra leaned in close to her mother. Don't make me do this. Mother sighed. Don't you want to love Geoffrey on your wedding day? I don't want to fall in love or have love denied me because a goddess says so. Everybody says Fricker is fickle. I don't understand why you're sure that she'll bless us with love. I don't care. Geoffrey will be a good husband. He works hard, keeps his word, and he takes care of me. Give us the chance to fall in love the normal way, not as an immortal's whim. Mother groaned and led Cassandra back to the line. You don't know how fleeting normal love can be. If I could have frozen your father's love into a stone, I would have cherished it all my life. Once I realized he'd slipped from my fingers, there was no way to get him back. 
When the goddess gives you love, you won't care that it was unnatural. You will value it more for what it is, a treasure that endures forever. Cassandra stared at her mother for a moment and shrugged. There's nothing I can say to convince you otherwise, is there? Mother shrugged off the question. We were supposed to meet Geoffrey promptly at two. She turned to the next man in line, who'd been whispering in the ear of the mousy woman next to him. What time is it now? Mother asked him. He looked up, sighed, retrieved his pocket watch and consulted it. I make it a quarter to three. You stay and hold a place in line, Mother told Cassandra. I'll find out if Geoffrey is doing the same thing further along. Cassandra nodded and breathed a sigh of relief as her mother paced up the line. So, what's your Geoffrey like? The mousy woman asked. Hmm? Oh, he's nice enough, paints houses. How long have you known him? Cassandra sighed. A month, give or take a week. Seems soon to be asking for Prigger's blessing, the man with the pocket watch said. But I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Cassandra nodded politely and stepped sideways just a little out of the line to check for Mother. She was nearly out of sight, just round in the corner where the line of waiting couples approached the canal. This might be her best shot. Cassandra hitched up the brocade hem of her dress and ran for the street on the edge of the park. There would be horseless hansoms there, and she had money. She wasn't sure where she would go, but the longer she could stay away from here. Cassandra! Geoffrey was sprinting to intercept her, his arms spread wide, a big grin on his face. Cassandra slowed down to a jog, then a walk, turning toward Geoffrey. She couldn't outrun him in the dress and didn't want him to realise that she had run away. He reached her in moments, hugged her tight and swung her up in the air for a moment, which made her gasp. Sorry I'm late. Is your mother holding our place? He let go with one arm to wave toward the line. The man in the pocket watch and his lady friend let her back into line without comment. A teenage boy and girl had arrived at the back of the line in the meanwhile. They did not object either to Cassandra and Geoffrey's arrival ahead of them. Soon Geoffrey was exchanging stories with them all, as Cassandra stood back and watched. The pocket watch man's name was Julian and he'd been married to mousy girl Faith for one week to the day. The teenagers were Henry and Raven, and they were from the East End. Do you mind if I ask you about your gifts? Faith asked. It's a horribly personal question. What do you pick as a sentimental sacrifice for a goddess? It's hard to find something with the right emotional impact to show the value of a life full of love, Geoffrey said. He produced a canvas from his jacket's inside pocket and unrolled it to show an oil painting of boats in a harbour and gulls in the air. It doesn't look like much, but my grandfather's best customer gave him this thank-you gift, and passed it on to my father as a housewarming present. I inherited it two years ago. It means a lot to me, because it was passed down to the family, and because it brought good fortune in business to each of us. I think it's perfect, Julian told him. He told Geoffrey about the sweater that Faith had knitted for him, and Faith showed the silver charm bracelet that she was about to sacrifice to Frigga's canal. Then they turned to Cassandra, and Geoffrey nodded. Mother has it, she muttered. 
It's a book my father gave me. So you're both sacrificing items from your father's, Julian pointed out. I guess that's fitting as you prepare to start a new life together. I hope Frigga blesses us all, Faith said. There are other things that matter more than the sentimental gifts. She judges the love in the couple, doesn't she? I think that's our best hope. Julian and I love each other so much. If the goddess is pleased, she'll preserve our love forever in its full beauty. Cassandra kept her mouth shut, because she felt like screaming at the other girl. What if Frigga judged Julian and Faith's love strong but fleeting, and decreed they should face a loveless marriage sooner rather than later? It's not all about presents or the love what's already bloomed, the teenage boy Henry said. I've seen it time and again back home. We find somebody new to try our chances with, pay our eightness to the wise ones, and come up with any old thing what has some memories to it. Doesn't work often, no. But if we can't stand the sight of each other after we're through the tunnel, it's no skin off our noses. But when Lady Frigga blesses a lad and a girl, they're good together. I think that's the key. She looks at what could be, not what is already. I think you're right, Geoffrey said. Other people in line shared their stories. An older couple, widow and widower, lost childhood sweethearts prevented from marrying with their hearts when they were young. A poor gentleman and a rich man's least favourite daughter who had come together for a marriage of convenience. And unfaithful parents attempting to mend their cheating ways. They all showed off their sentimental sacrifices, but Cassandra couldn't bear to look at more precious personal treasures thrown away for the sake of divine love. How could they act like any of this was a blessing? They were all lining up to face the judgments of an uncaring queen, and everyone but Cassandra couldn't wait. When she thought Geoffrey was busy enough with another conversation, Cassandra leaned close to Henry and whispered, Would you like to make a little money? He shrugged, his eyes steady on her face and his mouth an even line. That depends on what I'd have to do to earn it, miss. Just pretend to get into an argument or... Raven cleared her throat. You want us to create a disruption or a distraction? What will you do then? Cassandra hesitated, not sure how she could explain. It doesn't matter, Henry said after a few minutes. Her lot's all the same, thinking that because we're not as richified, we do anything for a few shillings. Well, you can forget it, my lady. We've got respect for this place, we do, and we wouldn't be so rude to Lady Frigger as to disrupt the line. That's our final answer, isn't it, my dear? Raven stood up straighter, her hands on her hips, and nodded slowly. That's right. He's right. Cassandra considered making one more appeal, coming clean, but Mother called her name. Cassandra, dear, where are you? Cassandra stood up straight and tall, knowing that Mother would be looking for her blonde hair. Mother beamed as she stepped into the line between Cassandra and Geoffrey. Good afternoon, Geoffrey. Good afternoon, Mrs. Worthington. Thank you for suggesting that we go through this tunnel together. It's my pleasure. Mother passed her the treasured copy of Jane Eyre. Don't forget this, my darling. As the other couples got into the boats, two by two, and vanished into the dark tunnel, Cassandra studied the layout silently. 
there were a couple of opportunities that she could see. First, at the front of the line, an old woman stood behind a podium. She was dressed in the deep red robes of those devoted to the service of the goddess and looked like she was important. The woman spoke with every couple, often inspecting their gifts and collecting the compulsory honorarium. Only when she was satisfied did four young men, also in red robes, escort the couples to the dock. I am Annika, chief wise woman of the worshippers of Frigga, the old woman announced when they reached the front of the line. Who seeks the blessing of the goddess upon their love? It's these two, mother said, gesturing to Cassandra and Geoffrey. I'm paying their fare. They brought their own sacrifices. The old woman stared at them vaguely for nearly a minute. Three pounds, fifteen shillings each. Mother had a ten-pound note ready, but Cassandra reached Annika first. She wound her hand back and put as much strength as she could into an open-handed slap at the woman's face. The blow staggered her, but didn't drive her back. So Cassandra put both hands on the woman's shoulders and shoved her. She smiled as the old woman flailed her arms wildly, trying to catch her balance, then tipped over into the water. Someone grabbed Cassandra from behind and pulled her away from the podium. She twisted her head, intending to smile and silently gloat at Annika's lackey. But the man holding her was Geoffrey, and the look of wide-eyed horror on his face cut through her joy. The attendants weren't far behind, and they surrounded Cassandra and Geoffrey. No violence allowed, sir. I'll have to ask you both to leave. It was the girl, a different attendant said. Not that it makes a difference. No difference. Did the older woman come with them? You can't do this, Mother exclaimed. This is my daughter, Cassandra Worthington, and her fiancé, Geoffrey North. Their names make no difference either. Neither nobles nor beggars can disrespect the wise woman. The attendants dragged Cassandra away from the podium, with Geoffrey still following, holding her tight. They are masterpiece! Mother's words made an immediate impression on the lead attendant. He stopped, looked at Mother, and then turned towards the podium. Cassandra felt a shiver run up her spine, and she wished she knew what they were talking about. Help Annika out of the water. I'll keep an eye on the masterpiece over here, and if more than her pride is hurt... Cassandra waited in silence with her mother and fiancé, as two attendants gave the old woman a hand out of the tunnel canal and conferred with her in whispers. Then one turned to face the three of them. Come quickly. You've wasted enough time. We're still going, Cassandra exclaimed, stunned that being a masterpiece meant more than dunking the old woman. But Geoffrey wrapped an arm protectively around her shoulders, and Mother produced the ten-pound note again. Cassandra tried to stand still, but the gentle pressure as Geoffrey began walking was hard to resist and soon they were on the dock and nearly to the wooden two-seat boat. I'll see you on the far side, 
Mother called. Cassandra fidgeted with the book as she settled herself. When she'd been planning for this contingency, she'd hoped to toss Jane Eyre to some safe place, both in the hopes of disappointing the goddess and so she wouldn't lose it. Now, between the attendants and Mother, she was under too much scrutiny to do such a thing unnoticed. Mother would insist that she take it with her, so she slipped it into a little compartment between their seats, hoping that she could keep it safe there and avoid surrendering it to the hungry water. Geoffrey took his seat next to her, and the boat moved toward the tunnel, towed through the water by a thick rope. He kissed her, but she twisted away after a few seconds. What was that about? Do you know what they meant by masterpiece? They were talking about us. Geoffrey frowned. Who cares about a masterpiece? Why did you do that to the wise woman? His breath caught. Do you not want to marry me after all? Was that your way of letting me know? Yes, I want to marry you, Cassandra said. But she wasn't sure if it was true or why. Why do you want to marry me? Why do you want to love me? I don't think you do yet any more than I love you. And I can't figure it out. I know I'm pretty, but we have so little in common. And you could find someone to love you without needing a goddess to intercede. (laughs) You sell yourself short. You're beautiful. And I'm sure you'll be a great housekeeper and a fine mother. I even like the fact that you're a painter, like me, in your own way. Geoffrey sighed. But the promise of undying love is a great attraction, I have to admit. I loved a girl before, but she left my heart broken. I long for love again and want to start a family, but... A painter? Like him? In her own way? Geoffrey painted houses and walls for money. A fine vocation, no doubt. But Cassandra strove to create beauty with her watercolours, and he patronised her for it. I'm an empty vessel to him, a maid for the house he has yet to buy, a nurse for sons and daughters yet unborn, and thanks to Frigga, a pretty face who will love him forever and never reject him, because he's too afraid to face heartbreak again. And that heirloom painting of his is insipid and banal. There's no passion in it, any more than there is between Geoffrey and I. He just likes it because of the bright colours of the sailboats. I know that your mother went to consult the wise ones of Frigga before she arranged the match between us, Geoffrey continued slowly. She didn't tell me about any masterpiece, but I got the impression that they guaranteed her we'd find love down there. He gestured at the tunnel up ahead. Across the canal there was a gentle slope. She could climb out of the water and join the watching crowd. Those people would find it unusual, but her heart would be her own, and Geoffrey would go into the domain of the goddess alone. That would be frightening for him, but it wouldn't be dangerous. He wouldn't enter with someone Frigga could make him hate. Between the fright and Cassandra's sudden dive into the water, To get away from the tunnel, he'd never make her come back. Cassandra couldn't bear to sit and listen any longer. She stood and jumped into the water like she used to do from the boats out on Pine Lake. The difference between swimming in bathing clothes and trying to swim in a heavy brocade dress 
struck Cassandra at once. She couldn't see the boat or the gentle slope. The dress hadn't dragged her under the water entirely, but she had water in her mouth after only a moment. Her heart beat faster, and the more she tried to swim, the more the dress pulled her beneath the surface. She choked, her throat burned, and her ears pounded with a desperate pulse. Then strong arms wrapped around her, lifting her up, and some voice deep down inside told her not to struggle. Cassandra blinked furiously. Geoffrey's shadowed face was in front of her, and a rush of warm appreciation spread from her chest to her fingers and toes. Thank you, she whispered. Then she wondered why his face was shadowed and looked around. Oh no! He had pulled her into the mouth of the tunnel. What's wrong, my love? She couldn't admit that this was what she had most dreaded, entering Frigga's domain with him. The boat must be leaving us both behind, she said instead. What shall we do? The attendants noticed what happened. The boat is waiting for us this way. He swam further into the tunnel, not letting go of her, and Cassandra couldn't make herself struggle. Geoffrey swam over to the boat, keeping one arm tightly around her shoulders to make sure she didn't slip beneath the water, and led her to the edge of the boat. Can you climb up by yourself? She took a firm hold and heaved herself up out of the water a little, but couldn't scramble far before her soaked clothes pulled her back in. Not in this dress. Perhaps you could... Keep hanging on, he told her. Don't let go. I can climb aboard, then give you a hand up. Geoffrey moved around to the other side of the boat. Once he climbed up, the boat started rocking, and she had to focus her attention on clinging tight to the side. Geoffrey reached his hand out for hers and pulled her up. As Cassandra settled on the boat, a shape of soft light began to coalesce in front of her. Slowly, It became a transparent woman, standing on the water just a few yards ahead of the boat. She was lovely, with long red hair that shone in the darkness of the tunnel. Beautiful child, you fear the touch of my gift. The voice seemed to come from everywhere around them at once. I do not often touch those who fear the gift of love, but to you I say... Do not fear. I am an artist too. Love is my paint and hearts are my canvas. Together you and your husband will make a masterpiece. What does that even mean? Cassandra shouted. Geoffrey started, looking around as if expecting to find the person Cassandra was talking to hiding in a corner. He must not be able to see Frigga as she stood in plain sight. Why did you pick the two of us? Do you know why you picked the colours and shapes in a painting of fancy? A work of pure imagination? How do you choose a flower to immortalise in art or a field of grass? The mind cannot solve such problems with pure reason. You open up your soul to truth and beauty. The answer flows in and you know that it is right. 
even I and those like me have souls. She stepped closer to the boat, close enough to touch it, and around to Cassandra's side. The time has come. Cassandra looked around, desperately seeking some escape, and found none. If she jumped out of the boat, Frigga would be able to walk faster than she could swim. But she could not bring herself to reach out for the goddess's touch, or even wait calmly for it. So she closed her eyes and buried her face in her arms, building her fear into a suit of armor around her soul. If Frigga asked her to not be afraid, then maybe... Even blinded, she could tell when Frigga touched her. She remembered her fear that she had feared taking her heart into the domain of the goddess and facing judgment. But that fear didn't seem important now. Wasn't her heart the rightful property of the Lady of Love and Commitment? Slowly, she lifted her head and looked around once again. The boat, Geoffrey, the water, the tunnel walls, the light at both ends. She took her book from the little box between their seats and tossed it into the water. Are you okay? Geoffrey asked. Cassandra nodded, and the night that they had met rushed through her mind. The party where Mother had arranged that they be introduced had been boring, but he'd taken her out into the garden under the stars, and they talked about their families and books and places they liked to travel. I love you. She leaned over, reached out, and guided his lips to meet hers. <laughs> I love you too, Geoffrey smiled in surprise. I guess this is what it feels like. The goddess blessed us both. She certainly did. Cassandra took Geoffrey's hand and held it tight in both of hers. Mother was waiting as the boat reached the dock at the far end of the tunnel. Thank the goddess you're okay, Cassandra. What did you think jumping out of the boat would accomplish? Her voice jerked Cassandra away from the brown depths of Geoffrey's eyes. What do you mean, Mother? I didn't jump. That would have been foolish. I must have been distracted and fallen out. We saw you jump, Mother insisted. Geoffrey? Geoffrey stared at Cassandra, a dreamy look on his face. I don't really remember what happened before I realized you were in trouble. Does it matter? Not to me. Mother? Cassandra held Geoffrey tight as they stepped off the boat. Mother considered the two of them. Are you glad you came today, my dear? She asked Cassandra. Of course. It's a relief to know Geoffrey and I will love each other for the rest of our lives, just as much as we did this morning. The only thing is, I can hardly wait two months for the wedding. And she led her fiancé off to enjoy the afternoon with him. Well, I leave it up to you to decide if that was a happy ending or not. Our second story tonight comes to us from Joel Arnold. 
Mr. Arnold is the author of the novel Northwoods Deep, as well as dozens of short stories. He lives in Minnesota in a house with a front porch. Nothing, however, at least as far as he knows, lives beneath it. It is read to you by Mr. Travis Sivart. This Peculiar Way of Hers by Joel Arnold Smitty sits on his porch, cigar in one hand, bottle of Michelob in the other. His wife, Arlene, is wrapped in canvas and covered in quicklime three feet below. Arlene's been down there for eight nights. Eight sultry nights. Frogs sing from a nearby pond. Traffic hums over the nearby highway. Smitty inhales the hint of freshly mown grass between puffs of cigar. The quicklime masks any undesirable odors itching to rise from the swelling form below. A mosquito lands on Smitty's bare forearm. He watches it before gently setting down his beer and squashing it under his palm. Not enough time for it to fill with blood. He flicks the carcass onto the wet, worn boards of the porch. He wonders if she'll rise again. Arlene, not the mosquito. She's risen every night since he put her under. As if on cue, he hears a soft, ragged cough. She never could stand his smoking, especially the cigars. Though not much, if any, of the rising smoke would creep its way down through the cracks. Smitty sucks on his cigar, takes another pull of beer, waits and listens to the sounds of Arlene shifting around in the quick lime, dirt, and makeshift blanket of canvas. She crawls out clumsily from the porch, sharp gravel digging into loosening skin, rose thorns raking across purpling flesh. She was the one who handled the roses. Now they'll probably go all to hell. Smitty wouldn't know what to do with a rose if it sat in his lap holding an instruction manual. Smitty tenses and fumbles for his gun, a chief special. He hasn't needed it yet, but better safe than not. Arlene doesn't even glance back at him as she makes her way across the grass on hands and knees, the bruises around her neck still visible, even against her decaying waddle still visible in the semi-darkness of a semi-moonlit night. She crawls onward and soon stumbles to her feet as if learning to walk all over again. She reaches out to the silver maple in the middle of the yard for support, pauses as if assessing her balance. Smitty watches, settling back against the slats of the Adirondack. Arlene disappears into the night. He wonders what she does out there. Wonders if anyone else sees her. Does she appear as a stranger wandering in the darkness? Stumbling drunkard? Maybe he's the only one who sees her. Which is worse, hallucinations or a dead, mute, yet very real Arlene rising every night to hunt shadows? He needs to think things through. Can't report her missing while she's prone beneath the porch, 
It wouldn't look good with the canvas and quicklime, not something a corpse typically closes up in on their own accord. It's damn hard to think straight with all the variables to consider, all the possible mistakes to be made, and to top it off, this damn restlessness of Arlene continuing even after he stopped her breath with his own bare hands. Think. Think, think. He takes a sip of beer. Then another. Slides down his throat cold, but starts to warm his body. Think, damn it. Think. And he does think. Not of how to extricate himself from this particular situation. No. He thinks about how he should have controlled his temper. Should have just walked out of the room when the shit hit the fan. But no, no. He refused to get off that rage train. Smitty's cigar is barely a nub between pinched fingers now. He hears a swish of bare feet over the overgrown grass sees a human form take shape. The remnants of quicklime on skin glows dully in the light of a half-moon. Takes one last puff off a cigar, nearly burning his thumb, and stubs it out into the clay ashtray their daughter made for him on Father's Day a long, long time ago. He reaches for the gun. Chief special. Just in case. He feels much better now, Craning thoughts slowed with each bottle of beer. The empties lined up on the porch floorboards next to his chair. Arlene cradles a dead raccoon in her arms, most likely something picked up on the side of Highway 20. Her mouth sinks into the creature's soft belly. Jaws clench, teeth rip. Powerful odor escapes the critter. Smitty winces. Winces again at the sound of Arlene chewing, and wonders for the umpteenth time why he didn't remove her dentures. Tomorrow. We'll remove them tomorrow as she lies beneath the porch. Young caps another beer, takes a hefty swig to combat the stench of rotting raccoon. Arlene. She shambles toward the porch, eyes milky white, unseeing. She pauses, sniffs the air. Smitty's heart quickens, his joints ache as he tightens his grip on the gun. Arlene drops to her knees on the hard, sharp gravel, drops to her elbows. The raccoon still nestled against her forearms. She drags herself slowly forward, first head, then torso, then backside, and finally feet, disappearing once again beneath the porch. Smitty sits still, listens. There's the sound of frogs singing, cars on the highway, Arlene settling herself in the dirt and the quicklime, shifting the canvas tightly around her. There's the sound of her gnawing the old dead raccoon. For the first seven nights, Smitty wondered why she wouldn't just stay dead. Wondered why she wouldn't just rot away peacefully under the porch. But tonight, he wonders something different. He relaxes, 
takes his hand off the gun. Hums a lullaby he used to sing to his daughter long, long ago to get her to sleep. The lullaby works on Arlene as well. The chewing soon stops and she goes back to being dead. Tonight, Smitty wonders if maybe Arlene, the woman he was married to for 49 years, the woman he murdered just over a week ago, he wonders if she'll outlive him after all. At least in this peculiar way of hers. Hmm. Love is a curious thing, is it not? This exquisite cameo here. Twas once owned by Florence Maybrick. Have you heard of Flory? She was charged with murdering her husband James with arsenic administered from a bottle of Valentine's meat juice health tonic. (laughs) I rather like that detail. A curious way to make one your valentine. I rather suspect Flory had a wicked sense of humor, and I approve. She somewhat reminds me of my wife, actually. She tried to kill me, too. Several times. A good wife should keep you on your toes. But that is a story for another night. It is time for us to close now. Do come again to visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives, license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Give us some reviews on iTunes. And if you're feeling generous, consider making a donation so we can buy more stories. Our authors deserve a better rate. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by string punk band D.E.V.M., For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.